Welcome to Love Where You Live, a podcast dedicated to real estate in the Treasure Valley. When's this bubble gonna pop? Is it a good time to invest? Hey, I wanna buy a house, but where do I start? Start, start, start. Join our hosts, Jamie Matzdorf and Corey Michaels, as they share information and inspiration about Boise's real estate and fun to be had in the gym state. We'll have guest speakers, new perspectives, and much more, much more. To learn about the opportunities in the Treasure Valley and be supported by Idaho's best, go to jamiematzdorf.com. Welcome to this edition of Love Where You Live. I'm Corey Michaels, along with real estate expert, Jamie Matzdorf. Jamie, how are you? I'm so good, Corey. How are you? Wonderful. All right, what are we going to be talking about this time? We have got some awesome commercial information. We've got okay. Greg Davis here with us from KW Commercial. Hello. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Thanks for having me on. So Greg is a good friend, a great family friend for many years. He actually went to um, Albertson's College of Idaho with my brother a few All years right. ago, Paper quite a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding, no kidding. And um, we have just crossed paths in real estate over the last few years, and I'm um, honored to have him in my circle. And he's got some amazing skills, both um, finance, real estate, you know, they all really bleed together. And oh, absolutely. He, um, he's got a lot of value to offer his customers and clients. So he's the perfect guy to give us some information on commercial here in the Treasure Valley and, and everything that that entails. You ready to rock and roll? Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So I just wanted to start with today by defining what commercial real estate is. Okay. Well, that's pretty easy. Commercial real estate includes uh, several different types of properties. Uh, the most commonly known kind uh, type of property that you'll hear about when people talk about commercial real estate is office. So an office building, most people have seen mm -hmm. those and know those. The other one is retail. Um, any storefront is a retail building. Uh, most people understand that. And then industrial is a warehouse, um, could be bare land that somebody's storing vehicles on. It could be uh, mini storage, anything like that. And then um, multifamily is an apartment building or anything greater than five units uh, is considered commercial in the multifamily sector. Oh, okay. Um, and then on top of that, you also have land that could be zoned for any of those types of uses. So basically any, any land that's zoned for commercial use falls under the commercial umbrella. Okay. So, so we're talking everything from a dentist office to an Amazon complex to a hotel. Would you say that's accurate? Correct. Yes. Okay. Hospitality. That was the other one that, uh, Thanks for that. Yeah. That's the other one that is under the commercial umbrellas, hospitality, um, motel, hotel. Okay. Now, so, so because I, you know, I'm the, uh, I, I'm the ignorant one here. I just, I just talk and follow Jamie's lead. Um, so I, when it, when it comes to, you were saying, so five or more becomes a commercial property. Correct. And that, okay. that typically is, is due to financing. We'll talk more about that later, but okay. uh, you can get a residential loan on a fourplex or less, but when it gets to five units, then it becomes a commercial loan. Therefore, okay. it falls under the commercial umbrella. Gotcha. So if, so if we're talking a townhome, a triplex, or a quad, a fourplex, those nine times out of 10 will fall under a residential loan, which would also be a residential agent. Correct. As opposed okay. to your expertise that is really that multifamily and then, you know, all the other different avenues of commercial, right? You got it. Okay. If something is zoned commercial, maybe it was residential at one time, uh, the land, and now it's zoned commercial, does that mean you 
what do you have to do to make that residential again? Say I found a, a big plot of land that it was zoned commercial, but I really want it. I love the location, whatever. And I want to build a home on it and just have a big piece of land with my home in the middle. What do, what would you need to do then to, that to switch or can you, you can do it. Um, typically what, what happens is it'll fall back to what the city's comprehensive plan is for okay. that parcel. Um, All right. If the comprehensive plan is kind of open and gives options, mm-hmm. then it's possible you could convert it back to residential. A lot of times those commercial pieces are on a hard corner or there's some other thing that rail line that goes through it. Right. That, uh, has led the the city or the county to identify that as a future commercial use. Okay. All right. Makes makes sense. How about we flip flop that? In today's market, we're seeing more often the opposite. Something that's residential or uh, more commonly probably agricultural that is wanting to be developed into either res- residential or and or multifamily commercial. Yeah, uh, what's a lot that of it's like? happening right now. And you're right. It's mostly apartments um, in the valley, at least here. That's what everybody seems to want to build. Um, and so the the steps to get that approved are similar. You have to go through the Planning and Zoning Commission. Um, you have to get it rezoned to a commercial use. Sometimes the, the city just wants a low density subdivision in that location and you may not be able to get it approved, but there are uh, land planners and, and professionals that do that specifically to help people take a piece of land from an ag zoning or um, industrial zoning and upzone that to a multifamily use. Okay. So if, so if someone sees some agricultural land, let's say a hundred acres and they see a potential for, um, you know, some sort of complex commercial development of any of those kinds of kind of the five major categories, would you want them to come directly to you to start that process or would they go to a different avenue before connecting with you personally? Um, if they come to me first, we can identify if there's a likelihood that that parcel is going to be used in the future for whatever their use is that they're, they've identified. Okay. Um, we can kind of do a dive on the, on the zoning. We can look at the uh, ACHD requirements and, and get an idea of if it's possible or feasible. And then from there, uh, we can help them start down that road and connect them with the right professional consultants that can do the zoning and development piece. Okay. That keyword you said there, feasible. So let's talk about finances. What's the f- kind of the financial major implications that are different from residential? Kind of the the basics of residential financing that we've discussed in a previous episode is typically 20% down to prevent the private mortgage insurance. There is a little bit of leeway, you know, here and there, but your, your payment will go up without PMI. Um, commercial is different. So what are some of the, the major differences between commercial and residential? Yeah. So financing is one of the main differences that we have between commercial and residential. And and there's a few things that are different, including loan to value, which you mentioned 20% down is fairly typical in a residential investment property. And I I think you can do less on a home that you occupy, but in in general, in an investment scenario, 20% down is pretty typical on those. Uh, When you get into the commercial side right now with the prices, you know, being up and, and, and the values are, have shot up recently, you know, a lot of the investors are putting 50% down. Wow. Um, mm. you, you can get a loan uh, for say 70% loan to value with 30% down. But a lot of times right now that they may not cash flow like that. And a lot of investors want to protect against some potential future um, decrease in value in the market. And so 
they, they are hedging that by investing 50% so that they know there's very little chance that the value of the property is going to go down by enough that they would be upside down. Okay. I think a lot of people learned a lot in that last downturn about what the market could potentially do and, you know, mm -hmm. values could crash and they've just been more careful and uh, planned a little bit more on the downside uh, as a contingency. So typically 50 to 70% down is what we're seeing right now on that. And, and is that of the entire project or just the initial initial purchase of, let's say, the, the property? Well, most of what I do is existing property. I do have some background in development. So the ones that I've done in, in development, typically those are 50% down on the land or less. Okay. They, I mean, most places won't lend you more than 50% on, on bare land. Okay. Uh, most banks. So there are developers who have lines of credit that they use to purchase the property and then they'll use the property as the equity in the development. So then they'll get a, a construction loan using the property that they already own as their equity. So instead of putting 20% down on the development piece or 30%, they already have that land value built in. So then they take the, the loan to do the construction and uh, eventually roll that into a permanent financing if they're going to keep the development or sell the project off at the end. Okay. I'm without getting too distracted. I wanted to ask a follow-up question about that line of credit is the, um, the HELOC, we call it in the residential, it's the home equity line of credit. Um, and these days it's the equity has increased such so drastically over the last, I mean, heck even the last 12 months, but really the last four years, um, that a lot of people, particularly in business are leveraging their home that has gone up in quite a bit of value drawing that cash out because oftentimes line of credits are an interest only for a fixed amount of time, you know, 10 or 20 years. And then mm -hmm. typically you can reroll it. In fact, ICCU, which we had as a great guest speaker here, um, they've got a really great line of credit uh, option right now. So is that the same for commercial that you, it's an equity balance and it's a little different. Draw some? It's, it's a business line of credit in okay. most cases. And these developers may have some collateral in another development that they've done in the past or something that's tied to that line of credit. But typically it's based on their banking relationship with that bank and the number of deals that they've done over the years. Um, and they go in and, and they talk to the bank and say, Hey, I want to be able to buy land at, you know, up to $2 million. So I need to have access to $2 million worth of, of funds in a line of credit. Obviously they're going to have to have a balance sheet that backs that up, mm -hmm. but that's typically how that goes down. So who, you know, and what your track record is. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. I'll let you continue on the, the financing parts. Sure. So some of the other types of financing that we see are the SBA loans. Um, there's mm -hmm. a couple different types of SBA loans and those typically are, are for owner occupied buildings. Um, you know, a dentist or an attorney or any professional that wants to have their own office or industrial building or um, a podcast studio. A podcast studio. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and with an SBA loan, it's, it's typically, you know, there's several different options, but typically 20 years or 25 years fixed interest. And the interest rates are lower than the market interest rate with the bank typically. Uh, so mm -hmm. they're very attractive. And the most attractive piece with the SBA loan is uh, you can actually purchase a building with 10% down. Oh, so my goodness. You buy mm -hmm. a, a million dollar building, you only have to have $100,000 cash to purchase that building. And uh, one of the other really great parts of the SBA program is they will allow you to buy a building that's bigger than what you actually need and lease out 49% or less to another user. So you could actually have somebody else paying your mortgage in your office building if you bought a 5,000 square foot building and you only need 3,000 square feet. 
that's that's awesome. Yeah. So the SBA remind me small business administration. Administration. Thank you. And um, you said there's a couple different avenues of SBA. Um, right. There's a kind of a standard SBA that you spoke to a little bit, and then is it correct that there's a portfolio SBA that a bank can do, kind of restructure? So the two types of SBA loans that I'm familiar with, and there may be others, but is the seven A loan, which is a SBA 7A, and then there's the SBA 504 program. Okay. I typically uh, have dealt with the 504 program and that um, that can be used for building or uh, buying an existing building. So you could use that program to, do, to build your own building new from the ground up or to buy an existing building. The 7A program also allows you to buy equipment. Um, so if you're a dentist mm -hmm. or a restaurant sometimes that needs a lot of mm -hmm. equipment, you can roll that into that 7A loan. So sometimes those different types of loans work better for different types of users. Makes sense. Got it. Yeah. So there's a couple other points that I'd like to just make on the financing piece. Uh, interest rates. So typically commercial interest rates are a little bit higher than residential uh, owner-occupied residential rates. Um, maybe you know, a quarter of a point or sometimes a half a point, even depending on where we're at in the market and yeah. what those rates actually are, you know, at a smaller interest rate, like a 2% interest rate, we might only see a 0.2% interest difference between residential and commercial. But when you get into 8%, it might be a 2% difference. Okay. Um, so it just depends on where the market is there. And then typically commercial loans are shorter than, uh, a residential home loan where you could get a 30 year mortgage. Most banks do a, 10 or 20 year, sometimes 25 year amortization period. And typically their interest rates are not fixed. So you may get a, a five year fixed rate and then it will bump up to some um, either LIBOR or CPI index or some kind of a, an index. It will be a, a rate that's tied to that market rate. So it may jump up or go down depending on what the market's doing. Okay. So okay. it would be important to, um, to really crunch those numbers and make sure that, you know, the numbers may balance now to be profitable or sustainable, but you know, in 10 years, if your interest rate is, could potentially be adjusted, you've got to accommodate for that in your long-term numbers. Yeah. You definitely want to test that on the upper limit to see what you can, what you can afford and know that going in so that if interest rates do start to kick up, you may have to either refinance or sell and buy something different with a different loan uh, to avoid getting to the point where you can't make the payment anymore if, it, if the rates go up that much. Now, okay. but but can you with the loan, okay, it's, it's say five years that it's fixed at that rate. Um, is there any way to be able to have the contingency in that, that at five years, it can't go up any more than X amount? Yes. Some of the loans have a built-in ceiling and a floor. Okay. And it's usually a couple points in either direction. Gotcha. Um, so you may have a, if it's a 4% interest rate to start with, it may have a six or 8% ceiling. So typically okay. they're not going to go 14% if you started at four. Okay. All right. Great question. Okay. So there's a couple other major things that um, kind of separate, differentiate um, commercial from residential. What are those, Greg? Well, the one that I, I feel like is probably the most um, prominent is that most of the decision making is more numbers driven versus do I like the carpet or the layout of this building? Because those things can be changed. But return on investment is probably one of the most important things that people look at in commercial. And I know that that probably doesn't cross a lot of homeowners minds when they're looking at the home that they're going to live in. Um, they may think about it, but it's probably not their decision making um, framework. Um, 
so in addition to that, you know, appraisers also look at commercial uh, numbers a lot a lot differently than appraisers look at residential uh, homes. So in residential, as you know, home values are based on what other homes have sold for that are comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, in commercial, it's based on the cash flows that are created by that property. Um, if it's owner occupied, that's an exception. They look at it a little differently based on other owner occupied sales. Uh, but if you're looking at an investment, it's going to be based on the income minus the expenses, which is your net operating income. And mm-hmm. then they take that number and apply a cap rate, which kind of is determined by the market. Cap rates are, are a, it's almost uh, equivalent to a return rate. Uh, so they apply that number to come up with the value of the property. And that's how appraisers look at it. That's how investors look at it. That's how commercial real estate agents look at it when we're valuing a property for a potential seller to tell them what we think we can, we can sell the property for. Will you define cap rate? Cap rate is called, it's a capitalization rate and it is very similar to rate of return. Um, basically it's, it's the net operating income divided by the purchase price. That's how you calculate it. So a typical cap rate in today's market in Boise would be a five cap rate or even down right now on apartments, we're seeing four and a half cap rates. So that means that in sort of quick terms that you're going to get about a four and a half percent return on that purchase price in your operating income, your net operating income. So in the industry, we hear a lot of cap rate thrown around and I think uh, most people don't really understand what it means. And um, I even had someone say a couple of weeks ago, um, find me something that gives me an 8% cap rate. Well, that's not going to happen in the Treasure Valley right now. Man, that yeah. was that was a glorious number 2011, in, in 2014. <laughs> we had some eight cap rates, but yeah. today we are not seeing eight cap rates. And yeah. I had the same call. You know, people think you probably Boise's, get them weekly. Boise's still, you know, little tiny town, and nobody knows about it. They're the only investor that's heard of Boise, right? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we just you know, educate at that. That's an educational moment, an opportunity for us. And we tell them, you know, what we're experiencing is multiple offers. We're experiencing, uh, over asking price by 10 to 15%. In most cases, cash potentially is, is going to be the only way to get a deal done at this point. It's hard to get a finance deal done. Um, there's just a lot of money chasing investment property in the treasure Valley, which we, as a, as a agent, I've been able to help my clients still achieve their goals by purchasing property with financing in this market. It's tough, but we we're able to do it. Um, and it's just from experience and, and, uh, having your ear to the ground in the industry and finding off market deals really is about the only way to get that done right now. I'm working on a couple of off market deals right now that are 12 to 16 unit apartment buildings. And that's kind of been my niche in the last two years is the 20 to 60 unit apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of in institutional investors that are, uh, you know, huge corporations and mm-hmm. families that have been investing in real estate for 30 years and have these huge portfolios. All of those investors are looking at Boise very hard and they all have teams that are out there calling and talking to every apartment owner, um, you know, from 60 to 200 units or even 300 units sometimes in Boise these days. And it's been very competitive. So by kind of taking the the piece that not as many people are focused on, we've been able to find some deals off market in that uh, smaller apartment building uh, market. So it's just, it's really important for, you know, folks to decide commercials, not necessarily the slam dunk that it used to be. There are mm. still massive opportunities. I mean, very obviously, but there's, um, there's fewer 
and the opportunities have a slower return, you know, so you're still going to continue to gain equity in the, in the land you have, oftentimes the unit, if it's maintained and upheld. Um, but that cap rate is lower than it used to be. So weighing if that's really the best option for your finances at this time or not is, is really important. And that's a, a huge piece that I think Greg brings to his clients because he is a numbers guy and he does have those relationships here in the treasure Valley to find, you know, those off market deals and, and be the first one to the punch on it. So. Well, and, and, and I, lo- I love something that you said just a, a few minutes ago, that it was an education moment. It was a teaching right. moment right. for that client. And especially for ones that, okay, don't have that massive portfolio, and but they have the, the money, they've been thinking about it, they want to get into a commercial property. Education, I mean, you could just go, sure, yeah, I'll take your money and and go forth. But without the education, you're really doing a disservice to your clients. So I love the fact that that was the first thing that you said when someone called it, it calls it being able to have that teachable moment educate them. And that is going to help them down the line as they want to increase their portfolio. So we have to start out by setting realistic expectations for what they can expect to find in the market, how that transaction might go down, what to expect during the offer period, what kind of due diligence they're going to have to do, all of those timelines, what kind of loan, who's the lender they need to speak with. Those are all the things that we talk about up front to try to make sure that they're prepared with the correct expectation going in so that they don't get frustrated. Right. So an expectation bust would be, I want to close on something commercial in 30 days, huh? It can be done. It can be done. I have a a really, really great relationship with a banker that he helps me out on stuff. And we just closed one in about that timeline. However, that is not the norm. That's the unicorn. That's that's not the the norm. Uh, Typical closing timelines go, you know, 30 days due diligence, which that piece is getting shortened right now just from market pressure. A lot of people are having to do that quickly, seven to 14 day due diligence, where they look at every piece of the property, Um, the physical property, the books and records, the uh, environmental, the zoning, all of those different things go into the due diligence piece. And then from there, you have a separate contingency for financing sometimes that may be a 45 day financing window. And then typical closings are 60 to 90 days. Okay. Awesome. So now I've got some realistic time frames. <laughs> so you mentioned, Greg, that you've really focused in the last two years or a majority of your business has been in the multifamily units. Um, we've discussed just just uh, scratch the tail on that one a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but give us some more information on why you've shifted to that a little bit and and why it's such a, a huge avenue of commercial business right now. Well, for me, it, it goes back to my background and I spent almost 20 years in property management. Out of college, I started working for a firm here in town um, doing property management and leasing. Uh, worked my way up through the company from leasing agent to CFO um, and my degrees in finance from the College of Idaho. And at that time, it was Albertson College of Idaho, yep. like you said. <laughs> oh, which yeah. Is, I'm stuck in the great. old ways. <laughs> yeah. ACI, ACI. Um, and so for me, it's just a, a natural fit. I understand I can look at a deal quickly and see if it has potential. Um, it doesn't take me days to analyze something. So because I've just been fully immersed in that world for the last 20 years, I can quickly give a analysis to a potential buyer and say, this is one we need to really look at, or no, that one's way overpriced. Here's why, or that one has these challenges. 
mm-hmm. you know, whatever they may be. So for me, that has been just kind of a natural fit and a natural evolution. A lot of the clients that I managed property for are serial investors. Mm-hmm. They have uh, purchased more and more property over the years and just continued to build their portfolios. And part of why that's happening is we, uh, you know, through the property management team that I was part of, we had a full service maintenance division and we were able to take these units, renovate them and get higher rents to push those values up and then do a cash out refinance and do it again. So I I know there's a lot of people doing that strategy, but not a lot of people are doing that in an apartment setting. And we've been very successful. We've renovated, I think if I had to guess in the last three years, we've, we've turned probably 150 units in maybe 10 different properties uh, to increase rents as drastically as one example where they were renting for 650, where we went in and did a full remodel with uh, marble tile in the bathrooms and hardwood floors. And we put in sliding glass doors that opened up to the park that was in the backyard that nobody knew was there Wow! because it just didn't have access. There was no door. Um, so we raised those rents to 1300 a month. Oh so my goodness. Doubled the rent doubled. on those yeah. and created huge, uh, equity for our, our client. So he was able to take that equity and purchase another 11 units, uh, from just pulling cash out of that property. So that is typical. We've seen that a lot. Um, I've got another client who purchased four fourplexes on one parcel. Uh, so 16 units total on the bench back in 2018. And we did the same thing. We renovated the units. They were renting in the 725 range and now they're up to 1100. You know, we renovate mm-hmm. them, get the parking lot resealed and striped, make them look presentable, raise the tenant profile and then do a cash out refi, which we just did. And instead of buying one more property, they bought two more properties. Wow. So they bought an additional 16 units in Payette and another 16 units in Weezer. So we had to go a little farther from Boise, but they were able to triple their unit count by doing this. Uh, wow. That's a high level of execution. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. A, there's a lot involved. There's yeah. a lot of, a lot of players and a lot of steps, but uh, we're able to replicate it and it's been very successful. Wow. That's great. And there sure has been um, a, such a high increase in demand in rentals um, in the last few years. And, you know, as you said, I gosh, 10 years ago, I couldn't even imagine someone buying a rental in Weezer and Payette, but it's just, it's where we are. We're, mm-hmm. we're kind of stretching at the seams and those are great places with people that need homes to live in. And, um, so in your opinion, has COVID affected any of the, um, the increased need, desire, want for multifamily family housing? Well, I don't know that COVID can be tracked specifically to that. However, I know that during COVID, a lot of people switched from working in an office to working from home, mm-hmm. um, which allows them to do that from anywhere. And you've probably talked about that on this show before, yeah, um, <laughs> that effect on, on our market. Uh, but I think it's a national kind of change that we're seeing. However, there was a study recently that showed that a lot of people are, are looking at working from home and saying, man, I wasn't as productive. There's so there's been a little bit of a decrease about 4% of the, in the number of people that want to work from home more than a couple days a week in the last year. So that, I think a lot of people see the grass is greener when they're in the office and they think the work from home sounds great. They get there and they've got kids and a dog and, uh-huh. and you know, the neighbors <laughs> mowing their yard and every all the single day things. of the week. Yeah. No, uh-huh. my, my neighbor right now is re-roofing his house. So I hear, 
and uh, it's, it's very loud and, and hard to work through because I do work from my home office quite a bit. So yeah, I think the housing need, what it's done is it's shifted that from the, the urban centers to a lot of the uh, suburban areas, including Boise and some of our outlying areas here. Um, there's a, a need for housing in general and they can't find a, a single family home just because we're in a shortage. There's so little supply that it, it's hard for them to compete in that market. So they rent by default. Okay. Um, and so the, the, the rental market is definitely growing. Mm-hmm. We've experienced the lowest vacancy in, in my experience in the 20 some years I've been here uh, in the past few years, you know, with it floating at that 3% or less vacancy number. You know, a market market equilibrium for vacancy is about 5%. So if, if prices and demand and supply are all kind of uh, even, you're going to mm-hmm. see a 5% vacancy. And right now we've, we've been below that for years. And I've seen studies that say that we're short housing uh, units in the Valley here up to 20,000 units short. And I think that's a wow. amazing number. And I think that it's is. growing by 2025. Yeah, I think, I think it was I either that or three, 2023, maybe 23. Wow. I don't remember the, the year, but yeah. it's, it's coming. I mean, we're very, we're going to be short by a lot. Yeah. So that's forcing people to rent. And um, what we're seeing is combining households because rent rates are up, you know, as, mm-hmm. as home prices have gone up, so have rental rates. And a lot of people can't afford it here to live on their own. So they're combining with grandparents or college age kids that are living together, multiple uh, generations living in the same home. Yeah. So we've, um, we've talked a little bit about um, the housing multi-generational. I'm curious uh, what your take. And we've also talked about the crystal ball that we don't have in this room. <laughs> Where's your crystal ball? I have one. Oh, well, perfect. You can answer this question. <laughs> so, so you said it's not quite as drastic as some think regarding, you know, the COVID's effect on housing. There is a a separate piece of that though. And that is how many brick and mortars are continue, you know, going to continue to house these call centers or, uh, I guess call center is the first thing that pops in my mind, you know, these massive groups of folks that can now work from home. So the, you know, the middle line is going to be smaller for these businesses. So it seems like mm-hmm. a no brainer. So now we've got all these beautiful business complexes all around town. What do you think is going to happen with those? I think a lot of people at the beginning of COVID predicted that offices were going to be vacant. Uh, retail storefronts were going to be vacant. And, uh, you know, a lot of the investors that were looking at those property types shifted to apartments or industrial. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, you know, as Amazon, like you said, has opened up in Nampa. And then there's another one in Boise. All of those industrial facilities are, are going up rapidly all around the valley. What we're seeing really is there, there was very little shift um, because a lot of uh, office tenants kept the space, even though part of their, their office employee staff were working from home because they were there part of the time. So they were in the office maybe two or three days a week. So rather than get rid mm-hmm. of that space or making people share desks or whatever the, the options may have been, they kept the, the space, they didn't downsize. And now as people come back to the office, they're seeking to keep social distance a little bit. And so that's actually creating a need for bigger spaces for these office tenants. Hmm. So some of them are expanding their footprint a little bit after COVID to give workers more, uh, you know, area around their workspace. I didn't even think about that. Well, that's different. I didn't think about that either. So it's not going to look like doomsday in downtown Boise. I don't foresee that. Hmm. Um, You know, retail restaurants took a big hit, but I think they, they jumped to the task and figured out how to use the to go orders 
Um, you know, every restaurant you go into now, you see them packing the to-go orders and the, mm -hmm. the incredible. drivers are popping yeah. in and grabbing it and jumping out. <laughs> I asked one the other day, I said, do you do more business by DoorDash than you do in the store? And they said on Saturdays, yes, for sure. And other days sometimes really? too. But hmm. so that was interesting. Um, and I think that's the new model that people are going to, and it's been successful. And I think people are enjoying eating at home, but still having somebody else cook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. It's amazing to me when we talk about those numbers of, of 20,000 units that are going to be short uh, for the Treasure Valley and for the Boise, greater Boise area. But man, it seems just around my neighborhood in Meridian, there's been a, a few huge, not not like, you know, four, six, 12 units. We're talking hundreds of unit apartment buildings going up. There's, you know, been the, I, I know the, some of the kids were living in big old one there in Overland and I saw that they were building more. So there's a lot of construction going on, multifamily and commercial, but still not really scratching the surface. There's a ton of people moving to our area. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people that are of age now where they're forming their own households where, you know, mm -hmm. we talked about people moving, living multi-generational. There's also the millennials who have gotten to the point where maybe they have one or two kids and they're tired of living in a little tiny apartment and they're going out to, you know, form a new household. Right. Um, those are all adding to our, our need here and the demand for apartments. So at one point in about the last six months, I believe there was over 3000 units under construction currently. Plus I believe there's a backlog of, of units in planning. That's like 6,000 units. So let's say those all got built in the next two years, that's 9,000 units. And right. that isn't going to touch the demand with the growth that we're seeing. So there's still going to be uh, far fewer apartments than are needed even though we've seen that huge growth and it seems like they're everywhere right now. And I think the, the there's some interesting things happening right now in, in areas like Caldwell, uh, Middleton, other towns where they have a temporary moratorium on any development. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to even tighten up the housing need here. Uh, it's going to mm -hmm. slow down the pipeline of construction. So that's going to, you know, force more competition. We'll probably see rental rates continue to increase, which it seems, you know, as a fourth generation Idahoan that grew up here in the Valley, right. I see these rental rates and think, holy cow, that's like oh, San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's where we're at today. And as long as people have jobs that can support that, I think it's going to continue. Um, and mm -hmm. that's more likely now that people can work from here and, and work anywhere. Right. Uh, they can have a California wage and live in Idaho. Yeah. Whereas the, you know, in the past, our Idaho wages have not kept up with that rent. So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's about the only way that that's going to be sustainable. Where is this sweet spot right now? I mean, obviously, depending on when you listen to this podcast, uh, you know, we're talking about right now. Yeah. Summer of 2021. Yeah. Summer of yeah. 2021. So if you're listening to this in the winter, you're late finding us, whatever. Uh, welcome by the way, but you know, these numbers could have changed, but for right now, what, where is the sweet spot for commercial, um, knowing that Boise and Meridian and that kind of area here is getting pretty, pretty crowded and the shortage. If I was looking, where would you say this is the spot right now? As an investor, I, I personally invest in, in apartment buildings and other, I have a small storage unit facility that my, my partner, Kenneth and I own together in that deal. We've looked at these outlying areas and they still have the potential for growth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 
Mountain Homes or mm. the Weezer, like I mentioned, or Homedale, uh, even Lewiston, some of the areas in central Idaho that are, or Idaho Falls. Those are all areas that, you know, as, as Boise increases in value and, and we see cap rates get pushed down, rising tide raises all ships saying, I think that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing in the entire state. So yeah. each one of these outlying areas, people that can no longer afford to live in Boise are moving you know, to Middleton or Wilder or places where they can drive to Boise in 30 minutes still, uh, but they can get a little more value for their, for their money. And that's creating new markets there for investors to find rentals, to find shop space that they can lease out to businesses, even ag land, you know, for, for what it's worth, that, that value has gone up for development purposes too, in those areas. Um, we were looking at some land off of Simplot Boulevard out there and those prices have just skyrocketed and what they're worth out there now, um, because you can take that straight into the freeway and be in Boise in less than 20 minutes. Yep. But you still live wow. where you can see farm ground and people love that. What's your perspective on the positive impact of that, those, that amount of units uh, being built in the Treasure Valley? Well, I'm hopeful that that will create enough uh, of a base of housing that's affordable for the future. And that's the challenge that we're facing, I think, is how do we keep things affordable? Construction costs are being driven up by uh, all of the construction inputs, lumber, concrete, uh, scarcity in all of those areas are... are, Laborers. Yeah, laborers is the huge one right (laughs) now. Um, You know, contractors just can't find people to work. Mm -hmm. So that's stretching out timelines on construction. It's making costs go up for... uh, the carrying costs of the developer because they have interest they're paying on a monthly basis for that development as it's getting built. So the longer it takes, the more it costs, the, you know, the more that end product is going to cost, you know, affordable housing is going to be the key in the future as we go forward. And can we have places for people that are blue collar workers or service industry workers that can live close enough to the, the places where they need to be to work at an affordable rate that they can afford. And that's the challenge. And I think the city of Boise out of all of the cities in the area right now is doing the best job to try to combat that. And they've got some, uh, bonus housing, uh, that they've, they've come up with through their, their most recent, um, city ordinance that will allow developers to increase density on a site by doing a few things. One of which is creating affordable units within their Mm -hmm. development, um, doing green construction with high energy efficiency construction. Uh, so they can reduce their parking requirements. They can, fit more units on the, on the site, depending on how they score on the application for that. And I think Boise also with their accessory dwelling units that they've allowed Mm. are trying to combat that. And they're doing a good job, I think. And I think other cities around should probably look to them as the leader and and follow suit. Okay. Last but not least taxes. There's a lot of tax implications and um, benefits and um, things in commercial that I think would be really valuable to our listeners. Yes. I am not a CPA and that's my disclaimer. Full disclosure. Hire a CPA that you trust. (laughs) That's a huge part of, of investing in any, any type of investment. But uh, specifically I would say for commercial real estate, there are tons of ins and outs and loopholes and things that you can take advantage of in the tax code. Um, And on that note, the current administration is trying to close up some of those loopholes or benefits and, and find ways to pay back the trillions of dollars that we just put out in stimulus uh-huh. uh, easy, by taxing easy. people. <laughs> 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 so, you know, the, a few of the things that are on the table right now with the current administration is reducing the capital gain um, 1031 exchange 
uh, where you can sell oh, a yeah. property and, and invest in another property. They're, they're talking about reducing that benefit to a $500,000 uh, number. So if you sold something larger than $500,000, you might have to pay the capital gain, even if you did a 1031 exchange. Ooh, that could um, hurt. Yeah. That's going to make a big difference. Yeah. And in addition to that, they're also talking about raising the highest level of capital gain tax rate. So if you go over a million dollars in capital gain, that number that was currently 37%, they're talking about raising that up to 39.6. So not only will you have to pay capital gain, likely you'll pay more. You'll pay more. Um, and so what I think that's going to do is cause investors to just hold their properties longer um, and look for another opportunity in the future, maybe under a different administration uh, or some other future tax change that might allow them to sell and not have such a huge tax hit. So that's one possible uh, change that we see coming. In addition, uh, they're talking about eliminating the stepped up basis. And that's kind of a you know, a jargon word if you're not in the industry, but basically what it means is if you're married or have children and you die, the, the heirs receive that property at a stepped up basis. So they, they would have, uh, when calculating their gain on the capital gain, if they were to sell the property, uh, they'll have a smaller capital gain because of that stepped up basis. That's the, the easiest way I can explain it. Interesting. Um, and they're talking okay. about doing away with that so that you would just inherit the capital gain that the, the the original owner had instead of the stepped up basis. Oh, okay. So that could do the same thing, which would make people hold on to their property longer. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that I've seen is just uncertainty. Um, and whether it's taxes or the market or, you know, the fact that they don't know what they're going to do with the proceeds if they sell something, just the total uncertainty that we're feeling with COVID there's just a lot going on pressures from every direction. It seems like on investors yeah. uh, to decide what to do. I think a lot of them are just going to sit on the sideline with their property and hold to ride it out. So that makes it even more challenging to purchase an investment um, if there's fewer sellers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're working on that. We're calling property owners and, and educating them on, you know, if you're looking to sell in the future, now might be a great time to sell because we know what the capital gain tax is right now. We don't know what it's going to be in the future and it probably right. is going up. That's yeah. my guess. So if you're thinking about selling and you're not sure if now's the time, I would suggest talking with us because, you know, we can analyze it and say, this is what you'll probably end up, you know, with approximately, if you don't do a 1031 exchange, here's how you can avoid some of that capital gain tax, rolling it into another investment. And, uh, you know, now if you are going to pay prop capital gain tax in the future, today might be the time to do it just because you're going to pay less today than you would in the future. All right. And all of that contact information is in the description of the podcast here. So you can be able to ask those questions, find out if now is the time or hang on and just sit back and and wait. Well, you know, talk to experts. Yeah. Get the proper education. And before you make a rash decision. Yeah, I totally agree. Thanks so much, Greg, for uh, answering all of my commercial questions every time I call, whether it's for my own personal potential investments or for clients. Um, I'm super thankful that I can refer people to you because it's your wheelhouse and that we have such a similar philosophy in treating our clients, um, you know, the same, whether they're little guys, first time investors or serial investors, as you said, by educating them um, and then, you know, providing them the information and then letting them choose what's best for their business or their family. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank we really you so appreciate much for you. the opportunity and it's been a very fun uh, new experience for me and I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. 
All right. Uh, It's one of my favorite parts of our podcast every time is our local spotlight. And this is exciting as we're into my favorite time of the year here in fall and the colors and just the crispness in the air. I just love it. Pumpkin spice latte time, (laughs) hot cider. Yes, we said the PSL, the pumpkin spice latte. (laughs) All right. So our spotlight going right in order with, uh, with fall is the Low Family Farmstead. It is, and ICCU has been so gracious. They have um, they've hooked up a discount, two dollars off an anytime admission, or seven dollars off a season pass when you use the code, the promo code, ICCU twenty twenty one. Or for the seven dollar off season pass, it's ICCU season twenty twenty one. So, okay, and we'll make there. sure and put this in the description too, so you yep. don't have to remember what we just said. We sure will, and there's fun for everyone. Last year, I went also. Adults can go. Take your full families. Tons of stuff to do. They've got um, you know food and snacks and you know things for all ages. Everything from um, animals that you can feed to sack races. There's a pumpkin patch if you need to get your pumpkins for Halloween, and then. Of course, the big, the corn maze and all those shenanigans too. Well, and they have like the hay rides and... Oh yeah, and I think all. there's some cow rides or something this year too, so... That's awesome. And turkey legs. Oh, turkey legs. Man, I love that. Just getting all medieval. <laughs> Nothing acting like, like on a turkey leg. Yeah, walking around, non on a turkey leg. That's great stuff right there. Some caramel <laughs> co- corn. Sure is, Mm-mm. sure is. So use your ICCU code if you're going um, just for one night, $2 off admission for anyone there with the code ICCU2021. All right. And I hope you can join us next for Love Where You Live. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Where You Live, a podcast dedicated to real estate in the Treasure Valley. Once again, to learn more about the opportunities in the Treasure Valley and be supported by Idaho's best, go to jamiematzdorf.com.